And welcome to day 21 of 31 Days of Halloween. Today's movie is a personal favorite of mine, The Frighteners, directed by Peter Jackson. It's produced by Zemeckis, and by some miracle, by some incredible feat, it feels like a Peter Jackson-directed film, but with a total Zemeckis feel. It's, the, it's a perfect blending of two sensibilities, and it really, really services the movie well. It was originally going to be a Tales from the Crypt movie. Uh, Zemeckis is, was heavily involved with the Tales from the Crypt series by HBO, and he also directed Death Becomes Her, which in my opinion is actually a secret Tales from the Crypt movie. There's nothing to say otherwise other than it you know, came out in 91 and sort of has that exact feel of a Tales from the Crypt episode. So it was called a Tales from the Crypt movie. But the, yeah, so The Frighteners was going to be I, possibly the first official Tales from the Crypt movie. Um, it was made the same time that they were making Demon Knight. And this is also when, you know, uh, they had gone into production from Dust of Dawn. There was a bunch of things that seemed to be in the running for the Tales from the Crypt moniker. What, what makes The Frighteners so fantastic is that it blends several films that come before it in just a, a, a wonderful way and one film that comes after it. it it combines ghost you know patrick swayze and Whoopi goldberg and demi moore you have ghost it takes some some of that and mixes it with ghostbusters and then mixes that in turn with elements from the flatliners and then throw in a little bit of final destination and a twist and a pinch of psycho and you get the frighteners uh, at the same time, it feels like it's doing a fresh original thing despite borrowing from so many elements. It still feels like its own vehicle. It doesn't feel like a total ripoff of any one of those things. And, you know, what what's really awesome, too, is that, you know, the material is, it's dark material, it's heavy material, but it the, the tone is so fun and light and it's like a... You have like almost this adventure feel to it, this Back to the Futures vibe that, you know, you have Michael J. Fox and Robert Zemeckis involved. You're going to get a Back to the Future vibe. You know, you're going to get a little uh, Marty McFly in there. And that makes the material that's so grave suddenly feel light and fun and fluffy. There's some wonderful sort of Easter eggs, I guess. I'm just going to go through these. I have a whole bunch of them. Uh, there, you know, I never noticed this before, but when Cyrus backs up into a light bulb in Frank's unfinished house, because Frank lives, Frank Bannister, he's the, that's the name of the character, great name for a character. He lives in an unfinished house. He's a former architect. Uh, his wife died under tragic and mysterious circumstances, and he can see ghosts. And so he works with these ghosts, and they basically scam people out of their money. He works with these two ghosts. I think one's is Stanley and one is Cyrus. And Cyrus is like the 70s dude with that black guy with the afro. He falls back on the light bulb and we kind of get that same light bulb effect that we get in Dead Alive when the girl, she dies in the kitchen, comes back as a zombie and she gets she lands backwards on a light bulb. Her back of her head goes into a light bulb and her head lights up and that's how the fire starts in the house. So I, I didn't notice that. I was like, whoa. Another thing too, he's eating booberry cereal. Uh, Frank Bannister, which I thought was really, really cool. There's a box of it, and then you actually see him chowing down on a bowl, which I thought was was really great. And, you know, this is an interesting movie because in the, in this mythology, ghosts, they they rot. Like, the ghosts rot, even though that there's, there's no corporeal element to them. They 
the stuff that they are made of, their earthly essence does decompose. And the judge, played by John Aston, so brilliantly, he's, you know, he's starting, he's ready to just, you know, rest his rest his spirit because, you know, he just, he's getting too old for the, for the haunt game, or as he calls it, putting on the frighteners. Oh no, it's R.E. Lemry, R.L. Lemry, whatever the hell his name is. The, 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 the drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket, he's the one that calls it the frighteners. I think they both call it the frighteners. Um, you know, I, I was trying to like, also like upon rewatching it this time, I'm like, what does everybody want? Frank wants, initially Frank wants just to finish his house. So that was interesting to notice. Also, the clavicle organ is so great. It's like, you know what I'm talking about? It's like that. It's like the same thing they use for Tales from the Crypt. There's the score is heavy with it, and that's what gives it some of that that light, fluffy, playful tone. And you know, I kind of thought throughout the film that Frank kind of has a death wish with his careless driving. That's how his wife died, and it gets him into trouble. Like when he crashes into Ray and Lucy's front lawn and that's what he realizes that he's gonna have to pay for all these garden gnomes so he sends his ghost friends to to scare them so he can kind of call you know walk make the whole thing a wash um the ghosts describe themselves as earthly emanations um and the earthly emanation is a rotting cloud of bioplasmic particles dripping in ectoplasm that's what ghosts are at least in the frighteners world and, you know, Ray finds himself a ghost mysteriously. We don't know why. Again, there's a mystery being unraveled here. And it seems like the specter of death is just randomly knocking people off in this town called Fairwater. But, you know, a day after Frank clears his house of ghosts, you know, trying to do his whole scheme thing, uh, Ray dies. And then suddenly Lucy is this ber bereaved widow. And Lucy is, she's played by Trina Alvarado. And she is I don't know what it is about her. She's breathtaking to me. She's such a beauty, such a beauty. And so, such a great actress, so much charisma. I, I felt such chemistry between her and Michael J. Fox. And uh, it's just a crime that she's not in more stuff. I, everybody is great in this film, by the way. Every single person, hands down. Like, you can't, and you know, honestly, I could talk about The Frighteners for three hours. I really could. So I'm really just touching on various things. Otherwise, this will be an hour long. And it can't be an hour long because I got places to be. But everybody's performance is phenomenal. What's interesting is Arlie Emery reprises his role unofficially from Full Metal Jacket. He's the drill sergeant. He's the ghost of the drill sergeant, which means that the events in Full Metal Jacket occurred before the events of the Frighteners, which makes sense as they are five, uh, eight years apart in, in time. Uh, well, no, actually, no, that would have happened in the 70s because the Vietnam War. Full Metal Jacket came out in 1987. But... That kind of makes Frighteners a accidental sequel or makes Full Metal Jacket an accidental prequel by having this character played by the same actor who's clearly playing the same guy. He's called Heil in H-I-L-E uh, in, in uh, The Frighteners. I don't know what, I don't remember what his drill sergeant name was in Full Metal Jacket, but it's definitely the same character and it connects the two films in the same way that Overlord is a prequel to Saving Private Ryan. This takes place right before D-Day, and the mission is predicated on, or D-Day's success is predicated on this mission that's happening very close to where D-Day is happening. So that's, I love it when movies do that. I think it's really, really great. Um, 
It's also interesting too, you know, Ray's funeral, there's a man standing in the background with a white handlebar mustache and a bolo tie. And he's just so, I never noticed him before. And he's just such a colorful extra. And I, just, I wonder what his story is. And, you know, everybody's sort of like, you know, you know, the, the saddest person at Ray's funeral is Ray himself. He's like crying hysterically at his own funeral. Nobody is nearly as upset as Ray. Although I suppose anybody would feel the same way if you were at your own funeral. I mean, it's, again, this is really macabre, trippy, heavy stuff um, to contemplate uh, normally, but it, it, through the lens of Peter Jackson and, you know, through the playful tone of Robert Zemeckis, it, it just doesn't feel as grim as maybe it should be. And then, you know, the one time that Frank has an opportunity to be a medium with Lucy. Because Lucy comes to Frank, you know, after the whole situation. She never once doesn't believe in Frank. Everybody thinks Frank is a fraud. Lucy's the only one that believes in him from the beginning. She's drawn to him for some for some reason. And she becomes drawn to him even further once she finds out that he too is a widow. They're both widowers. And she's attracted to the sadness that's with inside him. It makes them kindred spirits, you know? And she just always believes in him. So she goes and she says, is there anything from Ray? You know, at first Ray's really excited because Ray's following Frank around and he's going, you know, uh, oh, oh, you know, what does she want? What does she want to know? What does she want to know? And, you know, Lucy's upset because she lost, you know, Ray invested $16,000 and blew it on a bad investment for Lucy. So she has no money, you know, or her, you know, she lost a bunch of money and, you know, uh, her marriage to Ray is not, was not well. And it's just interesting how, you know, here's a moment, here are these moments for Frank to truly, you know, be the thing that he's always usually scamming people on, you know, be the medium. And he's very apprehensive about it. Like he's not like fully fledged into it. You would think that the guy who's always tricking people when he finally gets an opportunity to do the thing, that it would be effortless. And it's not, it's like, the, it seems to have the, the reverse uh, effect. And then, you know, also they, they go to, they end up taking the reservation that Ray made for Lucy and him at Excalibur, which is the restaurant uh, it's the restaurant where they had their first date or something, and it's kind of like a medieval times type place. Really fun, interesting place. The film was shot in New Zealand, despite the movie taking place in America. They go there. Um, the, the waiter asks Lucy, do you want white white wine or red wine? And she picks white instead of red. You know, Ray is, is boasting about how they always have red wine. He's shocked to see that Lucy wants something else. She wants a change in her life. Her former life with her husband is over and she, you know, she's ready to admit, she says, I never liked red. So clearly Ray was always, you know, making assumptions and ordering stuff for them, you know, or, or making decisions for her that maybe she didn't want to, you know, make that kind of thing. Um, then, you know, we meet Dammers, right? Dammers comes into the picture. There's a, a, a dude dies in the bathroom. Frank gets brought into the, the, the cop station. Of course, Lucy, again, she thinks he's innocent the whole time. We meet Agent Dammers, who's investigating this series of murders because, you know, there was this brutal killing, you know, where 12 people died. And, you know, there's this girl who's got D Wall played by D Wallace. She, she plays a, an, an older woman who was uh, associated with Jake, Bercy, Jake Busey's character, John Barlett. They, they committed a bunch of murders 30 years prior, and she's been like kind of under house arrest. And we learned her whole backstory, yada, yada, yada. And damn, and you know, there, there have been a series of murders since those original 12 murders. 
and Agent Dammers from the FBI, played by the Jeff, brilliant Jeffrey Combs, he comes in to sort of investigate things. And, you know, he's just, I, I literally, again, I told you I could do a whole hour on the Frighteners. I could do a whole hour on Agent Dammers alone within the Frighteners. Agent Dammers is one of my favorite characters of all time from one of my favorite character actors of all time. He is just, he, he's the best, man. There's a little bit of Herbert West in Dammers. Agent Dammers is the perfect example for when you give a character actor the free reign to sort of create within a character's face and build their own sort of backstory and you know, eccentricities and quirks into said character to make them really unique. And, you know, he just elevates the film. He is a minor antagonist. He's not the main antagonist, but he's a minor antagonist. And he just elevates everything, you know, for the role. Combs put little spacers behind his ears to make his ears stick out. He gave himself a Hitler haircut. He's wearing contact lenses that make his pupils look really dilated as if he's perma-tripping. You know, he's got, they're just pure black eyes. He's got all these weird ticks. I don't know if that was the writing of, of, of Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, or if, you know, Combs came up with the idea that he can't hear women screaming because it unnerves him. And it obviously unnerves him because of his backstory, which I never put together. He probably heard a lot of women screaming and it gives him PTSD. It's probably a, a PTSD tick that we all kind of uh, comedically laugh at. He's also got hemorrhoids. And he wears leather gloves that squeak a lot. And all of these things just really add to the character, man. They're just great. They're just these great little touches that just really make every scene just like a savory steak. As I said, this is character work at its finest. Combs was allowed to bring stuff in and put spaces. Yeah, we already, we already said that. Um, you know, when Dammer's is flashing back and in general throughout the whole film you get the signature move of peter jackson he does close-ups with these wide angled lenses and kind of pushes in on the close-up and it gives this you know it gives this sort of quality this sort of comic book like i don't know what it is over exaggeration stylistic quality to his work that makes it so signature. You know it's a Peter Jackson movie when you're watching it. And it seems to be sort of influenced by some some early Sam Raimi. Raimi is like that too. And there's like a physicality to the camera work that really just sort of, you know, puts his stamp on the scene. I don't know how else to say it. Um, in the flashback that, you know, Dammers is telling, they're going through the history of Banner, Banner's history. Uh, in da uh, Dammer's tell uh, recite telling the story and we're flashing back and Michael J. Fox looks like a sleazy big shot in a suit and his swagger communicates everything we need to know about Frank without saying a single word, like what he was like five years ago as this big shot architect. Um, it made me wonder, who would Michael J. Fox play in the MCU? Because he's just got such a... Um, He's got such a charisma in this role. And I'm just trying to think, like, who is he in the MCU? I couldn't figure that out. Um, he, he, you know, the other thing about Dammers, too, is every time that, like, he talks, it's like he's imagining. He's like, it's like he's reliving things that he never actually experienced. So he, he, tre you know, he, he, uh, he has, like, tremors and he sort of, like, you know, shakes and uh, is over-exaggerated in his movements as he talks. It's just really, 
really great. And this is where you really hear the, that squeaking of Dammer's leather gloves, you know. I also think this movie should have had its own video game. You know, I just, I feel like it, it really lends itself. Like, I could imagine it on, like, the Sega Genesis, the Frighteners. It'd just be really great. Um, then, you know, they, uh, Frank, Frank, I guess the, Frank is leaving the cop. I forgot what happened. He leaves the, um, he leaves the cop station. What? I'm trying to remember. What's the connective tissue? He gets to a museum. There's more murders, right? The judge starts having sex with a, with a dead mummy. He goes, they don't call me the hanging judge for nothing. And you know, that, that jawbone coming out of the judge's jaw is just so great. It's so great. It's such like a, it gives like, it really adds like a level of physicality to his makeup that makes him feel like he's really falling apart. It's kind of like the hip bones on the tar man suit in Return of the Living Dead. You know, like there's very little that's holding him together. And we got this scene where the butt is just, the ghost butt is humping up and down. It's really, really great. And, you know, I this is one of the last times that we see Peter Jackson's crude roots from his splatter films, his early splatter work. That's like the last time you really see that out of Peter Jackson. I don't think you see it, you don't see it at all in Lord of the Rings. You don't see it in King Kong. Uh, he just sort of, you know, he became a mainstream filmmaker. This is that film. This is the, this film is the bridge between being a mainstream filmmaker and being that DIY independent filmmaker that he was. Um, the, uh, you know, and I took note here, the newspaper lady, she's just, you know, before she dies, she's such a great character, man. Ray's a great character. The sheriff's a great character. Lucy is a phenomenal character. Like, she's so wonderful. And again, I love her eternal belief in Frank. It just, it's really, really great. Um, you know, I mentioned, that, you know, they wind up back at the police station after the, the, the museum situation. You know, he's getting locked up. Frank's getting locked up again or whatever. And way before we see the hemorrhoids joke with like the little inflatable, you know, pillow that he puts down on the seat, we see Dammers, when he's interrogating Frank, and this scene is so good. It goes for a really long time, and it's just a masterful scene where Dammers just gets to chew the fat. He chews the fat of this scene, and uh, he makes an attempt to sit in a chair and becomes very uncomfortable and stands back up to continue his meticulous dissertation on paranormal activity in relation to Frank and what he thinks is going on with Frank. And it's just a nice little note that I never really noticed. And Combs, he's just, you know, he's just, he's commanding the scene as, as Jackson is, you know, he's doing this, that zooming kinetic wide close-up, close-ups in the interrogation, that same style I was talking about, just full on with it. Um, I love seeing Cyrus and Stanley walking through the whole uh, police station and into the jail cells. It's just really well done. It shows like we see cross sections as we see how easy it is for ghosts to sort of navigate the physical world, you know? Um, and then, you know, the whole time kind of trying to understand what does Frank, sorry, what does Dammers want? Like, what does he want in this film? I've been trying to figure that out, man. And I, one thing is certain, he wants Frank to die. He wants Frank to die. It's almost like, he wants Frank to die because it will put an end to his work business there. He he talks resentfully prior about getting all the fruity cases. It's really annoying for him. 
you know, and we learn later why all that is. He has this psychotic break. It's not really a psychotic break. I think it's part of a pattern, but we'll get to that. Um, Lucy makes it to Frank's unfinished house and sees the garden that Frank talks about. Frank talks about how he put in a basketball hoop when his wife wanted a garden, and that was their last time they ever spoke. They were fighting about, you know, her having a place in her garden because he was designing their house, you know. They were building and designing the house. And that's when Frank, who was drunk, you know, took a turn off of a cliff and it caused her to fly out of the car. And that's when um, Patricia, the character played by Dee Wallace and, you know, Johnny Barlett played by Jake Busey. That's when they, they take her out. But Lucy really gets to revel in G Frank's genuine nature. And it's all the proof that Lucy needs to know that Frank isn't a bad guy at all, like everybody is saying. You know, despite the fact that there is plenty of evidence that shows that he is a bad guy and that he did set them up for a scam, she's unconcerned by it, like, incompletely. And I love it. And then we get this wonderful answering machine plot device that drives the plot. She heads back over to Patricia's house. You know, there's this whole scene with Patricia earlier. We learned that she's kind of haunted or whatever. We don't know why yet. She goes back over to Patricia's mother's house because she hears that Patricia's mother is saying, you know, Mr. Bannister, we need your help because my daughter's communing with evil spirits. And she knows way more. She knows what the deal is. She knows what Patricia's really up to. And, you know, Patricia's like just ultimately this brilliant red herring. You know, she claims that that Johnny Bartlett's ashes are actually her father's, and she's just totally lying to Lucy. She's the ultimate ma manipulator. She uses her childlike innocence to sort of trick people, and the only person that can see through it is her mother, you know, and, and Johnny Bartlett, who's like, you know, pulling the strings from behind the scenes, you know. And, you know, as, and this is where, I, you know, I mentioned, as I said earlier, Lucy is deeply attracted, but not, not not like not sexually per se she just feels herself drawn to frank because you know he has experienced the same pain of loss that she is going through um when when lucy becomes marked because what's happening is these marks are showing up when the murders are happening these these numbered marks show up on people's um on people's uh foreheads and that's how we know that they're they're doomed they're they're going to be the next ones that are going to be reaped by this mysterious reaping figure which turns out to be johnny bartlett on the low that's he's disguising himself as death and when he finds that out frank is ready to to, to murder himself in order to become a spirit to fight Bartlett. He, he doesn't know it's bartlett yet but he's willing to do this and lucy who doesn't want to lose frank she doesn't want to let him go you know, um, she says there's another way, and this is where the flatliners element kind of comes in. You know, they they lower his body temperature and, you know, shoot him up with something and it allows him to have an out-of-body experience that he needs to fight and to sort of play defense for Lucy. And she's kidnapped by dammers, you know. And, you know, the, the first romantic moment we see between Lucy and Frank, the you know, we've seen some hugs and some hand-holding. But then they kiss through the door and it's cold, you know, it's because of the, the, they're turning down the, the temperature to sort of give Frank his out-of-body experience. And it kind of represents how their love is very slowly unthawing or as it's thawing, it, the love grows and they have this hand touch and this kiss on the door. It's very sweet. I really, like I said, I really shipped, I shipped this hard. I, I really did. I love it. I love, I love seeing it. 
Um, and again, Danvers wants Frank dead. He wants to leave him in cold storage. And he takes Lucy. He takes Lucy to the cemetery, right? Um, and then we learn that he is basically suffering from years and years and years of of deep undercover work. You know, he's P PTSD. He was a sex slave for the Manson family for six months. He says, you know, he was drinking goat's blood for three years in another cult. And, you know, eventually he was involved with ritualistic cannibalism in orgia orgiastic dances reaching painful thresholds of intense physical eroticism. And as he rips his shirt open, he doesn't have the lead breastplate anymore that he has under there. We see all of these crazy scars. We see swastikas on his hand, tattooed on his hands. We see satanic pentagrams and weird scars. He's missing his nipples. It looks like his nipple was ripped off. And he says, my body, it's like, this is a super quotable one. My body is a roadmap of pain. It's like so great. And here's the thing. I think Dammers does this a lot. He singles out a woman that he thinks that he can open up to or in any individual. And he kind of takes them through this whole rigmarole. And that's what he's doing with Lucy, you know? And later on at the hospital, he says to her, he says, you're all the same. Like he does this over and over and over again. It's part of his sort of his, his act. At 91 minutes into the director's cut, because that's what I'm watching, the director's cut, which has 14 minutes of extra footage. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, gratuitous. I think that it has a place in there. Just, add, just character moments that add to the story. Did it, does it need to be in the theatrical cut? No, the theatrical cut works fine on its own. I rarely say that. I love director's cuts, but it's always nice to watch, you know, all the extra trimmings. At this point, it's almost unrecognizable to me. I don't know what the theatrical cut is anymore. I only know the director's cut. At 91 minutes into the director's cut, we head into what I think must be Act 3, and Act 3 begins once we learn that Johnny Barlett is the death, the death Grim Reaper character. Because uh, Michael J., uh, Frank Bannister, Michael J. Fox, Frank Bannister, he successfully beats down the ghost and all the ghosts in the cemetery, some of which are victims of the original Johnny Barlett murders, thank Frank for avenging his death. And, you know, as Johnny Bartlett's putting himself together because Frank shot him with some protoplasm machine guns from the drill sergeant, uh, he looks like a duty man. It's really funny. It's just really crude, bad CGI. And here's the thing about CGI that I've learned. If a movie is really good, if the story is really good and the CGI is dated and we recognize that it's dated, we don't care. I did not care. I do not care that the CGI looks kind of gummy in a lot of this stuff. It's at the dawn of brand new CGI technology that would that that's the birth of Weta, you know, Peter Jackson's company. And you know, this is the reason why Weta exists. Weta exists because they needed they needed computers for the frighteners. You know, that's why they do Lord of the Rings. They do Lord of the Rings because they have 32 computers and they don't know what to do with them. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it like that. Um, uh, I wrote that in this world, uh, Dee Wallace's character, Patricia, her psychosis is driven by ghosts. You know, like normally... Sometimes in very in, they're in stylizations of mental illness. Mental illness is a very real, very serious thing. Obviously, we know this, right? 
but in very like in, in certain cinematic depictions of mental illness, we find out that mental illness is caused by some factor. Maybe it's something that's driving, driving the story. In this case, the psychosis seems to be caused, her mental illness is caused by murderous ghosts. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. Murderous ghosts tell her what to do, which is, you know, coupled with, you know, what, you know, in real life, schizophrenics, when they talk about, they talk about demons in their head and stuff like that. And this is like a cinematic sort of exaggeration of something that happens to people in the real world. I'm not saying that people in the real world are plagued by ghosts. I'm just saying that, like, it's just interesting to see how it, man, you know, you would you would think that normally you would just think that Patricia is suffering from mental illness. But when, in fact, that she is just seeing ghosts, that's what's causing her to, to, to act this way, to talk to things that are not there, essentially, to other people. Um, it's also interesting that she has a paranormalized sexual relationship with Bartlett that involves pegging. Do you know what pegging it is? Pegging is, take a guess at what pegging is. It's when, you know, it's when, uh, um, uh, someone puts a strap on and usually someone without the equipment for that and replace it's usually someone who doesn't have the right equipment for, you know, being the pitcher, for being the top, as they call it, right? And the the bottom is the is the one is the peggy, the one who's getting pegged by the person who doesn't have the right equipment for the being the pegger, so they use a strap-on to do so. And basically Patricia and Johnny are doing this pegging with a knife. She is pegging him with a knife and he loves it. It's, I thought that was interesting. Um, there's a really great red backlight that kind of comes over Patricia as we she turns on a dime and she goes full psycho as she tries to kill Lucy. I thought that was pretty great. She just spins on a dime. And, you know, the whole time her in her performance, she's channeling a girl who never grew up. It's really great. Uh, eventually, you know, they, they need to get the, Johnny's ashes uh, onto de- consecrated ground or something so that he can... Uh, Passover, and they can be rid of his evil spirit. And there's a whole stalking third act, gr- lots of suspense, lots of fighting, and yada, yada, yada. Dammers gets his head blown off with a shotgun. It's great. And uh, Frank figures out how to rip a soul from a body. He kind of dies from his injuries. But then he comes back, um, and they he basically lures Johnny's spirit into the spirit realm by ripping Patricia's spirit out of her body and getting sucked up. And it's just a really cool sequence. The wire work, watching them float, I don't know. It's very interesting. It was very well, well done. And then we see that they're actually in the mouth of a giant worm or that this portal can turn into the mouth of a giant worm, depending on whether you're a good boy and girl or pronoun, you know, whatever, um, or bad and get sucked back down into hell and that hell sucks and then frank you know he turns back around and gets to live life on earth with lucy bulldozes the house um sheriff sheriff comes he wants to write a book with frank about the experiences and frank's like i don't want to do that sheriff and you know the uh, the sheriff reveals that patricia in in information that we totally didn't need to know we could have been shown frankly he could have just kept a stack of Ouija's in in a closet or something. She used a bunch of Ouija boards when she got out. She got out, I guess what happened was she was locked up for many many years and then she got put on house arrest five years prior to the events. 
And that's when the killing started again, when she got back out. That's why it all started up. They continued the grisly work of Johnny Bartlett. They got to number 12 because that's what Johnny wants. All Johnny wants to do is just have the highest body count so he can brag to the souls of other serial killers. And we find out, and Frank literally says, nice epilogue. You know, like it's it's the, the filmmakers, it's Jackson and Walsh and Zemeckis and whoever else is going like, like, you know, we know that this is, we're writing a cheesy epilogue and we don't care and we're putting in, it's great. And then Lucy, you know, the, the Don't Fear the Reaper comes on as the ending song and it's so perfect for this movie. It's the perfect button. I put it right up there with Where Is My Mind for Fight Club. Where's My Mind is the perfect end credit song for Fight Club and just what a great way to end the film. Same thing with um same thing with this, right? Same thing with Don't Fear the Reaper. It's per literally perfect. And you know what else would have been good too? Don't Fear the Reaper would have also worked well as the end song for Scream. If I had my druthers, that's what I would do. And I'm sure I skipped over a lot of stuff. Like I said, this is a very truncated review. I will be talking about this film on a podcast, the Real 96 podcast, with my friends uh, Nathan, Michael, and Bob. Um, you know, we're all in the, the Genre Blast film festival community. Uh, Nathan runs it. And we're, yeah, so we're doing that. So shout out to those guys. I'm very excited to talk about this movie with them. And, you know, I just wanted to do, I figured I might as well use this as my review for 31 Days of Halloween. So that's what I did. Tune in tomorrow for another review for another movie. I got to tell you, this was really tough. This was hard to do, 31 movies in 31 days with a video review. I, I did twice this amount of movies last year just by watching films, like, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Uh, it was also a little bit different because my daughter wasn't going to school and, like, I, there was less to do. But, like, this, this year was very challenging. I don't think I will do this again, the video thing. I think I'll just keep it... Uh, I, I will just keep it as a, a private sort of thing that I do on my own. Um, I don't know. Maybe. We'll, we'll see. We'll see.